Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I am Jordan Tyler Coltman. I'm not alone. I've got Elliot Tanti here. How are you, Elliot? Oh, good to be back. It's been like a month without Hattrick for me, so I'm I'm excited to be here. Yes, we uh, we missed you dearly. I know you were off with your beloved on a honeymoon, which I'm sure was a lot more fun than uh, sitting here and watching the Padres lose. But uh, we will get to that in a second. Look, it's Halloween. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, it will be officially Halloween. And every year, I know you put in a lot of effort. Uh, last year, you took me up on a suggestion, and I think you went as Andre the Giant. Not the height, necessarily, but certainly the hair. Uh, what, what What's and your plans? <laughs> okay, well, you can say that. Uh, what, were, what were the plans, or what are the plans this year uh, for Halloween? Yeah, so we actually did our, uh, our event in costume last year night and uh, it was a couple's costume we went as gomez and morticia from the uh from the adams family but of course uh throwing a curveball in there i went as morticia and my wife went as gomez which was uh quite fantastic yeah i'm sure there's photos of it somewhere go find those oh there are photos that's scary uh yeah to some of the men that i took interest in last night all right let's leave it there uh and jump to it here's topic one all right so uh, I, I I was alone last week. It was uh, it was fun to just sort of just have to ramble on and, and rattle on without any pushback or uh, opposition. But I'm glad you're here because uh, obviously the baseball playoffs have have reached the sort of the the top of the mountain. We're in the World Series now, and obviously that's the Phillies and the Astros. Uh, we when I spoke last week to our listeners, uh, we were talking about sort of the end of the two. Uh, championship series leading into the world series. And uh, the big story for us on this podcast was obviously the fact that unfortunately uh, the Padres weren't able to get, uh, get it done and get to that world series after a very, you know, promising, but also very eventful season. Um, So let's start there. Uh, Obviously the world series tied one, one, we will talk about that, but let's start with the Padres because you haven't had an opportunity yet to sort of sound off on it. Uh, I'm sure Yankees fans are devastated, but should Padres fans be more devastated or more disappointed considering all the promise and hope that they had, or is this kind of a a victory in and of itself that they still managed to get here regardless of all the other drama? Yeah. I mean, I think it's more the latter than the former. I think when, we learned that Fernando Tatis Jr. was going to be suspended and that was going to impact the entire season. Um, The expectations for the team definitely changed. And actually they sort of limped into the postseason. I mean, they made it there, but they were like 500 and it was up and down and they had pitching issues and it wasn't for certain that they were going to make the playoffs at one point, you know, they were a wild card team. Um, But uh, so, so I think that they got getting as far as they did and, uh, and, and, you know, obviously losing to the Phillies, but beating the Dodgers, uh, you know, that's, that was big for this team. And, and again, they did it without their best player or their second best player in Fernando Tazis Jr. So, uh, well, it's going to be an eventful off season. There's some contracts and some things that need to get sorted out. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the Padres have lots of, there's lots of yeah, excitement in, for the years to come. This is not just a one and done. They've got Soto now for a while and, I think that this is going to be really exciting. And basically they've got amazing pitching. They've got really strong. They've got a really strong bullpen and that's how you win in the playoffs. So I, I, I sort of took your question and jumped on from there. I would say that this is good, that this is positive. It's nice to have the team get the experience, uh, but certainly the expectations for next year are much higher. Okay. So let's, let's, let's 
take the same question the other direction. Let's spend four or five, ten minutes, however much you want to talk about the Yankees. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about the Yankees. Let's talk. Let's let's jump right to the World Series. We'll leave the Padres for a second because look, they didn't get there. Uh, World Series is two games. We've got two games done already, and it, it seems like right now the uh, the key for the Phillies is to prevent the Astros from scoring five runs because they've scored five runs in both games. Now they were able to overcome that. In fact, I believe at one point they were down uh, five nothing in game one and came all the way back to score six unanswered runs to win game one, sort of shocking the Astros. But then the Astros just came back in game two and did the same thing, put five runs on the board. The Phillies didn't have the firepower, a little bit better pitching, obviously, from the Astros, big part of that. But when you look at this series, I know usually you make predictions before the series is started. Now you get a little sample size. It's even, so now it's a best of five. But even with what you already know, uh, where are you feeling? Where are you going? Where, where, what's your gut tell you about who we should be expecting to be the world champs at the end of this? Uh, it's tough. I, like you said, it's a really even series, two really close teams. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not obvious like it usually is. And both have overcome like pretty substantive um, teams in their own leagues to, to sort of get to this place. It, because my heart is sort of saying the Astros – uh, that's where I think it's going to go, but it's, it's really, it's it, it, a lot will depend on how, uh, how consistent the Phillies can be in terms of their bats. Are they, are they able to break through the Astros, the Astros pitching? And, and I think we've seen one version of that there they have and one where they haven't. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the diff- difference maker for me. Can the, the Phillies bats keep up? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think the Astros are, are definitely the more dominant team and, and they've looked like that all the way through the playoffs. Uh, I think the Phillies are sort of the, the, I don't know, like um, they, they've kind of captured America's heart a little bit because they're one of those iconic teams that hasn't had a lot of success recently, but it's got a long lineage and a lot of people start to cheer for that or whatever. Uh, so, I mean, I, I Again, I, I, I'm kind of torn, but I think I think you're right. I think that it still favors the Astros. And when you look at these two games, although the Phillies found a lot of offense there late in game one, um, they had real, real struggles in game two. And the Astros pretty much on par both games. They did exactly the same thing. And if they can continue to do that, it's just going to make it hard for the Phillies to sort of stay with them, I would say. I think the Astros also have a little bit better pitching depth. And to be I fair... Mean- a bit more experience as a team because they've been to the to multiple World Series recently with this core, so that's another factor. Yeah, I, I and you can't discount that, right? Like that's part of what's so valuable with the Padres this year is having this little run, as though they other guys had a chance to sort of go through that experience, and, and and so you can't discount that. I think like the Astros, like I think the American League is better than the National League, so the quality of competition that they've had to get through to get to this point, uh, also for me gives them the nod as well. So um, just before we wrap this up, I wanted to get your opinion on one other thing relating to the World Series. There is a very funny and odd statistic that exists uh, when it comes to the Phillies winning. I don't know if you have already heard this, this little anecdote, but the, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, for some very strange reason, when they win World Series, they lead to American financial ruin. What do I mean by that? 1929. The first time that a baseball team from Philadelphia won the world, well, what wasn't the world series, then it was a championship. And of course the, that preceded the stock crash that led to the great depression. Then in the eighties, uh, the Phillies won their first world series and the following year, a recession raged began to rage and it raged all the way until 1983 
uh, when the team again got to the final round and lost. So while they've been the World Series champs, uh, the other the other one, um, well, the Phillies won the World Series for a second time in 2008. And we know how that went too with the whole housing crisis. So it doesn't bode well for America and the economy and therefore also probably politics when the Phillies win a World Series. So I'll ask you again, who do you want to win the World Series? Yeah, now I'm definitely with the Astros. It's not a great omen, especially for a fan base as, as rabid as Philadelphia to then also have that on top of them. I'm sure that that doesn't uh, that's not what they want to hear, considering, you know, you, it's not a great way to rally bandwagon support, is it? No, no, not at all. They're, they're basically, only people in Philly will be cheering for that team. And God forbid if something happens, if they win, that would be very funny. All right. Well, let's wait and see. Uh, we should know in a few, uh, in just over a week and a bit here as they get ready for game. We should three. be selling our financial portfolios. Yeah. 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 Keep an eye close on your stocks, your bonds and, uh, and also on baseball. All right. That's topic. one. You like fast cars. You like when they race, whether you're a seasoned formula one fan or you've just discovered the rush of racing. Check out the Pit Stop Podcast presented by the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Join Jordan, Tyler, and Braden each week as they recap every race as well as break down the biggest stories on and off the track, all before setting you up for the next race in the Formula One schedule. The Pit Stop Podcast is available anywhere you get your podcast. All right. Um, we're going to spend a moment or two talking about the Edmonton Oilers. I talked about the NHL kind of writ large last week, more specifically about the struggles here in Vancouver with the Canucks, which is a lot of fun from, for, from oh, you, you would have enjoyed it, Elliot, had you been able to be here. Uh, but we're going to talk Oilers. We didn't really do a season preview or like a lead up to the, to the season as we have in previous seasons. So we'll spend a moment sort of talking about where we are uh, currently nine games in. And kind of uh, what we've learned and what we still feel the uh, data is out on. And then I'll let you make a couple bold predictions. Uh, nine games in, they're 6-3-0, and oh, uh, 12 points on the board. They sit second in the Pacific Division, Vegas uh, ahead of them. Uh, 10 games played, and they've got two more wins. Calgary right behind them. But uh, Edmonton and Calgary had a very interesting game on Saturday night. Felt a lot like a playoff game. It was tightly checked. It was a low scoring affair. Very different than uh, the early game uh, that we saw where Calgary jumped out to a massive lead and chased Jack Campbell. This game, uh, Stuart Skinner was in net. And I wondered if you wanted to start there. Obviously, all of the punditry around this team is, is talking about the quote-unquote goalie crisis when you've got a massive contract on a guy like Jack Campbell. And so far this season, he's so sort of... Uh, let's call it uh, been uh, shaky, not, not just, I, I wouldn't go as far as some of the people in Toronto would suggest that it's been a disaster. Uh, I think it's early. Um, but for you as a fan watching, um, and I know you started sort of watching from afar because you were away, but having now come back into the city of Edmonton, what's the mood, what's the tenor and sort of what's been your perspective on either Stuart Skinner, Jack Campbell, and, and just the team writ large. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that because I missed the first three games, I think, or three and maybe four games of the season um, uh, while I was away, I have a very different perspective on things. Really, the team for me, like I, I know their record overall is six and three, but it's really like four and one uh, for me in terms of. So I have a much very, very different perspective on how the team uh, is doing including this this conversation around the goaltending I've actually thought Campbell's played pretty well 
I mean, he's made he's and maybe this is just my frustration with last year and, and the goalie tandem last year. It's just it wasn't that Mike Smith was bad. In fact, his his stats were, were were quite strong, but it was the inconsistency. And there was times when he was remarkable, and then there was times when he just wasn't of NHL caliber goaltender. And what's so nice to this year is, and you know, it's been nice to get it from Skinner too. But just Campbell, just like someone who makes NHL caliber saves, and that the consistency in that, you know, if he's going to get beat, it's going to be a, a heck of a play. You're not going to have some random, you know, mystery event where the goalie's in the corner and the puck's in the net, like we'd have with Mike Smith. So. You know, for me, I actually, I quite enjoy just the consistency and what we've seen from the team is, is, is goaltending that's good enough to win. And that's all we need at this point. So that that's how I'm feeling on that side. And I'm quite bullish on the team. I mean, I think the one thing for me is, I feel like I say this once every six months, but is it possible that Connor McDavid's gotten even better? I mean, He's on pace right now for 87 goals. Yeah, yeah, which he won't get. And I don't think he'll get 70. I don't think it'd be cool if he got 60. But certainly a heck of a start. Heck of a start. And uh, and he's scoring goals, which is big. And, you know, traditionally he hasn't had great Octobers. Uh, you know, and... Yeah, he uh, leads the league in points at 18, nine goals. Uh, he leads in both of those two categories. Uh, he's only edged out at assists, I believe, by Leon. Yeah, so, you know, what a start to the season, but it just seems like there's a new fire there in terms of, and, and a new caliber. Every year he brings something new. Last year it was the one-timer. This year it's it's even more goal scoring and finding ways to do it, and he's taking shots. And it's interesting, there was a couple interviews I heard over the summer with him or with actually with Leon, uh, where they he was talking about how Connor could be a 50-goal scorer in the NHL, and I think this might be the year that he does it. Like, uh, which is just incredible to me like that he can, it, like it's hard to imagine that you could get better at something like he's he's so good and he's obviously the on, on top of the best league in the world and yet we're watching him I, I guess this is what 12th gear find the 12th the 11th it seemed like last year's playoffs was was a new high and then he started this year even more you know yeah I mean I, I think you're right I think uh, obviously Nothing surprises me anymore. I think with Connor, you, you just see how he's able at a, a sort of a moment's notice to sort of take over a game. Um, and I think that he's demonstrating more and more that he has uh, continued to get bigger and stronger. The big thing I noticed in the Calgary game the other night, and I, and I remarked on it live, was he looks like he's physically gotten bigger. Um, and maybe that's just continuing to mature as an adult and as, as a man getting bigger each year. But he, there were times earlier in his career where he had the speed, he had the finesse, but he could kind of get muscled off a puck down low or something. And that seems to be something he's gotten a lot better at. I saw a couple plays against Calgary where he was either cutting to the middle or had possession in the slot and was able to sort of hold off a defender that was on him uh, physically to, to kind of keep that space and make a play, whether it was a pass or even get a shot off. And that's something that's another uh, addition to, to what he brings. And obviously if he can continue to make um, strides towards that, then you've got a speed threat, you've got a skill threat, and now you've got a physical threat. And I don't mean he's going to be making huge, big checks. I just mean he's hard to cover and that's valuable. Obviously Leon Dreisaitl looks a thousand times better than he did in the playoffs because he's healthy um, and he's looked pretty good. I would say um, overall, and again, as you acknowledge, you missed sort of early games, but the one big thing that I observed in the last two games that I've watched as opposed to the earliest games, I think I watched the first three and then I missed a couple because I was at work, but 
what you can see is the Oilers are starting to get tighter in terms of their passing, in terms of their sort of puck possession play. Early in the season, there was a lot of those sort of, and you kind of expect that. Look, there's eight preseason games, but I think only half of them actually see NHL action during that. So um, it's to be expected that there's some early kind of miscues and some sloppy play, but it felt pretty uh, haphazard in those first couple games. You look back at the goals against uh, both Vancouver and Calgary in the first two matchups, and a lot of them were just sloppy turnovers and neutral ice and stuff. Oh, trying too hard to make a pass that wasn't there. Now they're making those passes. They're mm-hmm. crisp. They're tight. They've really seemed to, to dial in. I like what Woodcroft has been able to accomplish um, with sort of this 11 and seven setup. Um, and obviously they're a little bit tight right now because of the salary cap in terms of how many players are carrying, but it's working. And I think that uh, one of the other byproducts of that is you're seeing some consistency in the lines. Now he shuffles every once in a while, certainly. And when they're down, he likes to still put Leon up there with McDavid and that's great. But this dry sidle Kane, Yamo line, Connor Hyman, uh, and sometimes Kane or sometimes Puliarvi line has also just allowed for a bit more consistency. Uh, but I think that's interesting because the players that I think are actually the most improved, I, I, I agree with you, Connor's good and he's getting, he, he's always good, but I've really enjoyed Nuge so far this season. I thought he's come into this season really, really strong. And Evan Bouchard, another huge step forward, um, putting himself in a much better um, position uh, to continue to, to become that sort of number one uh, offensive defensive threat for the Oilers. Um, but I, I do want to talk about Stuart Skinner because obviously it's only two games that he's actually started. Um, oh, pardon me. He's played in three games. I believe one of them, he came in in relief. And so he gets the loss in the, in the law in that, in that, cause he played most of the game, but he's had two starts and he's won them both. He's got a 1.59 goals against average in those three games. And he's got a nine, five, five save percentage. It's not a huge sample size, but he has been more, um, sort of calm and relaxed, making big saves when he needs to, but for the most part, just very routine, very solid goaltending back there and keeping them in games where because they're pushing, they'll often give up an odd man rush. And for the most part, he's done very well in those situations. And that's what this kind of Oilers team is going to need from both of their goaltenders down through the season. They are an offense first team that's just how they're built there's not the defensive depth um that's that's going to bail them out of bad turnovers and in fact it's often the defense that turns the puck over on this team because they're pinching a lot and now it works you can run up scores on teams when it's firing but there are going to be teams like calgary the other night that's able to exploit that and get odd man rushes so your goaltender has to be able to stand tall i had forgotten he was 23 and I'm watching him now at 23. I said again, during the game, I thought he was like 25, 26. Like that's when goaltenders usually come into NHL kind of quality, 23 years old. He's easily uh, comfortable. This is where he belongs. He's an NHL goaltender, arguably a, like a one B if Stuart Skinner is still your one a, but I think the Oilers have sort of, lucked into and developed into a tandem again. And I have no problem with that. I think that in the modern NHL, you need a guy who's going to be able to play 50 games for you as the backup, quote unquote. I think Stuart Skinner could be that guy. I think Woodcroft trusts him. I think the team trusts him. I think he actually compliments what Jake Campbell does really well too. I think Campbell's going to take a little bit of time to adjust just as every, I think, goaltender that gets traded is. Just historically, go look at it. Markstrom didn't play great his first couple of months in, in, in Calgary. But, it's a big shift to play with a whole new group in front of you. Campbell will figure it out, but Stuart Skinner's legit. 
And uh, I wasn't sure I was ready to say that going into the season, but from what I've seen so far, he is legit. Yeah, I think that's a fair, that's a fair, fair assessment. You know, the other thing for me that I think is worth mentioning too, is just, you just see this team. It's like, it, they, they just seem more mature. And yeah. I just think some of the resiliency, you know, like they give up that shorthanded goal and then score on the power play. Like when's the last time we've seen that happen for this team? Not for a long time. Uh, uh, going into the third period down 2-1, getting the 32 victory. Just like very, they're just finding ways to win, but there's there's a calmness around it. There's a calmness from the goaltender out. And I think Stuart, Stuart Skinner sort of embodies that, but that's like the entire team. They're, they're settling into this. They know the expectations are great. It's clear that the expectations are great for this team. Like we all talked about it. We know it, right? Like they got to the conference finals last year. So the expectations, they take a step this year. Um, but they are, it doesn't look like that the burden of that expectation is impacting the team at this point. They are, they're six and three, um, you know, through the first nine games of the season. And that was after kind of a, a shitty start. So that's good. That's, that's what you want to see. Cause this is the core, like there's not much that's going to change, right? Like no. the next, the, like I think Kane's contract is kind of the first one that goes up now. Right. And that's in three years. Otherwise it yeah, yeah I think what's, long term. what's interesting is when you look now. at this team, uh, I think there was a lot of criticism about whether or not all of these pieces really fit together. But you're starting to see, as you say, that maturity coming in, that experience coming in. I mean, Evander Kane is, is, is exactly as advertised. He's become probably the most dangerous player on the ice for the Oilers on a lot of nights. And I mean that both because he's physical and he's in the offensive zone, making things happen. You go back to dangerous for the Oilers too. Sure. And he does take penalties, but the truth is I think this Oilers team kind of feeds off that. I was saying to, to Larice the other night, I actually think the Edmonton Oilers right now are the kind of team. And it's not just in hockey. You see this in other sports too, but like they almost always play better when they have a chip on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. It's like when something goes against them, whether it's in game or it's before the game or something else, they seem to be able to feed off that. You kind of get that sense and that energy. There's a little bit of a, like, what's that from, from the Michael Jordan doc? Like I took that personally, like they kind of do that, you know, Leon, you can just tell there's this little, they play better agitated. You know what I mean? When they've got that burr in the saddle and, and Kane kind of does that for them. He's able to muck it up. He's a bit of a pest. He's a bit of a rat. He plays those kind of Brad Marchant situations where he can get into the other team's head. And sometimes, yes, he takes dumb penalties. He got in trouble for, you know, unsportsmanlike conduct after that ridiculous refereeing situation the other night. But I also think he's a huge asset. I think the most impressive or the, this is a bold take. Here's my hot take for the early part of the season. I think the best transaction or best acquisition Ken Holland has made so far, that includes Kane, that includes any of those transactions, all the players he's brought in or moved out on defense is, is Zach Hyman. Because what Zach Hyman has done for this team in terms of work ethic and drive, he does what we used to only get from like a third or fourth line energy shift. He does that on the top at top line minutes all game long, go look at the two goals or the, the goals he was in on, including the one he scored uh, against Calgary. And he generates those plays The the work he does down low, the way he's hard to play in the corners and it turns opportunities. And for the more skilled guys around him, because no one's going to say Zach Hyman is, is, is the top skilled player on this team, but he's one of the hardest workers. And, and that's a consistent thing every single night. And that's the experience. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think if you look at sort of, if you take a look at those, 
the way that the top six is built, you've got two unbelievable skill players in McDavid and Dreisaitl. You've got two unbelievable puck retrieval and hard workers in Nuge and Hyman. And then you've got two big bodies in Pugliarvi and Kane. Uh, and Billy Harvey's not where he needs to be yet. We, you know, he is what he is. And okay, well, let's talk about that for a second because I think but, you're right. But you think about that, like size, puck retrieval, yeah. and then skill. Like it's 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 like they, they it's, do make it's a good end. fit. So let's talk about Yessi for a second because I think that that's fair. But as I went off last week about the kind of the, this fixation, almost fetishization that Mark Spector and the rest of Edmonton's beat reporters have with this whole Yessi Puliarvi must go thing. The, my struggle with it is that. All I see is a player who who is struggling right now to kind of connect on a lot of the chances that are there for him, right? But he is always in the right place. He is using his body physically in ways we really need. He's able to get to those dirty zones and he's grown into, I think, his body a little bit more than he was as a younger player in terms of being able to hold his own there. He draws penalties. uh, And then he's also sticking up for his teammates and going to those hard spaces. And in many ways, as you say, when you've got two really strong, skilled players on, on a line with him, that's kind of what you want out of him. Now, would you like him to be able to, to connect a few more times on those outlet passes that seem to always just miss him and lead to icings. Yes. He seems to be struggling a little bit with his stick and, and, and finesse control. Like he gets a puck on his stick and it's a bit, it's just a bit messy. It's a bit sloppy, but that might just be who he is. My argument is he should be every single time the puck is on his stick in the offensive zone. He should be throwing it at the net because he's got a great shot, but he's not able to dangle around defensemen the way he's trying to, and it's causing turnovers. But I think that when you compare him to some of the other players that are kind of in his price bracket on this team, I would make the argument that the bigger liability right now for the Edmonton Oilers in in that sort of top nine is actually Kyler Yamamoto, who has been a complete non-factor to my eye. Like he's every single time he's got the puck on his stick, the play dies. Um, and, and, and his line mates seem to be making things happen. Uh, he seems to be in the play. But he's not, he doesn't seem to have the same kind of like bulldogish truculence he once did. Like he used to go to those corners and kind of outplay his size. And he seems to have gone back to being the small kind of outworked guy on, on that top nine. And maybe that's just about comfort and he's got to kind of figure out where he is in the season. But for me, the eye test, Pugliarvi's a more, um, he's in more impactful situations, whether they're all going in for him or not, obviously they're not. He's got one, I think that went off his foot, but he's, he's in the play more than I'm seeing Yamo. Yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't watched enough to know for sure. I mean, I've seen Yamamoto do the classic Yamamoto, like pickpocket plays enough a couple of times this year. And that's sort of what he's good for. He's sort of like Hyman and nude light in that way. Um, It's funny. Very light. Like him and Pugliarvi, like they, they have like, like I think he's got more skill and less size, and Puliyarvi's got you know you know so, so they, they they sort of like they do that where where they're lacking is sort of opposite to each other. Yeah. Um, and if you were if you really, put them together, you get a Vander Kane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you, you know, these guys are both so so young. I'm with you on Puliyarvi. I mean, I I don't understand. I I get I understand I know where it comes from and and I and why the media go after him the way he does and it's because he's asked for a trade and because of the you know they've all been, when he left and then came back and this 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 meat market has this weird the older guys have this like weird thing around loyalty and anyway it doesn't matter we don't have to get into that I think you you know you talked about it last week um, but 
Yeah, and again, it's super early in the season, and the, like I'd rather have them on our team than not. Honestly, of course, like, yeah, no, for and, sure. And there's not like, you know, my fear is these guys, these two young guys, are going to go somewhere else and just light it up, right? But because I think they could, I, I think they're close. Like they're both close in just different ways. I'm not as hard on Yamamoto as you, um, but I'm also not as bullish on Puliyarvi as you. So I like I think we're 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 in the same ballpark in terms of that. And again, nine games in. You know, they're, they're, the lineup hasn't really been set. They're still that top, you know, that top six, top nine is still. You know what we of- haven't talked about, though? And I know we're running this topic pretty ragged here, but let's just let's just for a second spend it on what everybody wants to say the Oilers' biggest weaknesses. And it hasn't even come up because it's it's kind of been mitigated by the great offense that they've had. They've been able to manage it really well. But I don't think the Edmonton's, def- Edmonton's defense is as bad as everyone wants to believe it is. I think that they are still early in the season, and therefore you do get bad turnovers in situational hockey. But Evan Bouchard defensively, huge steps forward. I also yeah. would suggest that although – Tyson Berry is pretty much the same player he was last year. He's not out there to be your shutdown defenseman. He's out there to play on the power play, to get opportunities and move the puck. And he does that, you know, but when you look at this roster, here's a crazy stat. And then, yeah, we're only like nine games in the, the Oilers leading player statistically and plus minus with the highest plus rating is Brett Kulak. Yeah. He's a sense. defenseman who has not, been on the ice for a goal against in the first five games. I, I'm not sure now if he has been, but up to five games into the season, he had not been on the ice for goals against. And remember, those are two games they let in almost five goals. So he has played really smart, defensively sound hockey, exactly again as advertised. What we talked about in the offseason saying it was a great re-sign after being a bit of a yeah. rental for them last year. He's exactly what the Oilers have lacked in a little bit, which is that experienced defensive defenseman. And yet he gets it up on the play. He's got two assists already in nine games, which is good considering I think last season he had something like eight assists the whole season. So he moves the puck well still. Uh, he's got nine shots on goal already. That's a shot a game. Look, as a defenseman, that's awesome. I also think we're seeing... Um, a coming out of sorts uh, for a defenseman that I think was under a lot of people's radar. And that's Nima Linen, who's basically taken the job away from Philip Broberg, who yeah. a lot of people had penciled in here, but what Nima Linen offers this lineup that they weren't going to get from Philip Broberg and won't get from Philip Broberg in his career, because I would argue Philip Broberg is Evan Bouchard light. Um, the what Nima Linen is is also something this team has not had in a long time, and that is a physical defenseman who goes to those corners and punishes the wingers and makes it hard to come into the zone. He makes big aggressive plays and he plays good defense. Um, and he took you know, he he takes uh a lot of the hard minutes that you used to have to split between like three or four guys. And he makes it easy to say, yep, get out there on the penalty kill. Yep. Get out there when we're trying to close out a win. Um, And even as a rookie or maybe he's got one year under his belt, but even as a young player, he's, he's, I don't know. He's exactly kind of what the Oilers have needed for a long time. And it's just nice to see it develop from internally, as opposed to having to go out and find it. You know, I, I think that the seven defensemen look for this team really makes a lot of sense. It is it is a bit of a group that does it by committee. I mean, Nurse is the leader and is the best player and is going to play the most minutes, obviously, and has played a lot of minutes to start and has had a good start to the season as well, too, which is maybe why we're not complaining about the defense. Um, but, you know, having seven back there and going 11-7, having seven defense just means that, you know, there's less time on the ice for – uh, this defensive group. And I think the majority of them outside of nurse 
are you know at their best when they're giving you between 11 and 17 minutes a night and when you have seven guys that means you can do that more often um because you're getting you're getting a really good 11 to 17 minutes versus uh a declining you know 24 or 25 and i think that that's you know that can't be understated as well too um, but it's also a, a group that's a year older. I think Kulak, you mentioned Kulak. I We can't say enough about CC. That was the one that you missed that I would know. Yeah, that's right. That's a good CC's point. CC's done a, a, you know, a heck of a job back totally. there. Really grown into that role. And uh, and so, yeah, so far, so good. And and it's not like they're, you know, there was the 6-5 Pittsburgh game or whatever the score ended up being in that. But, you know, 3-2 in a hard-checking defensive affair against Calgary. Um, they played a hard, two hard games when they won, when they lost against St. Louis, both were really well checked and well defended and basically one goal games. I think both ended in empty netters. So, you know, like they, they've, they're, they're playing different, they're winning different ways too, which I think you have to note as well. All right. Well, uh, long season ahead of us still, but lots of positives, obviously, uh, space for improvement, space for, for them to continue to, I mean, it's been nice in the last couple of games. They've at least gotten over the, let's not show up till the second period syndrome. Um, also crazy statistic for you. I believe it's still 22, it would be five, yeah, 22 or 23 now. Cause they beat Calgary. No, they, they didn't score the first goal 22, like five and one in the last, uh, two seasons when the Edmonton Oilers, um, score first. They're number one in the NHL when they score first. Pretty crazy. Um, so one more reason for them to show up early and actually sort of get on the board. But they also seem to have found the ability to come back in games when they're down, which is great to see. Let's leave it there. That's topic two. Hey, Tyler. Yeah? Do you like basketball? Do I? Well, you're going to love this then. The Backyard Basketball Podcast has returned for its second season. Christian Steck and Braden Della Coltman talk hoops every week of the NBA season. No topic from the hardcourt is off limits. So if you love basketball, then this show is for you. You can subscribe today anywhere you get your podcasts or learn more on our website, ordinarypodcasts.com. All right, let's jump into it here, Elliot. Uh, we're not going to do a traditional hats off, but I know that you'd love to take your hat off, maybe rub my nose in it a little bit. But here's where we are at. The F1 season is down to two races. We finished this past weekend, uh, Mexico City. Uh, it allowed Max Verstappen to capture his 14th victory of the season, making him now the all-time leader in Formula One history for wins in a season. Now, he would argue, and I think, Fairly. It's a tricky statistic considering we've had more races this season than ever before. And in his career, those race numbers just keep going up and up, but it's still a record nonetheless. And it's a very impressive marker. Uh, he passes Michael Schumacher and I believe uh, Sebastian Vettel, who set the record at 13, uh, also with Red Bull. Uh, so he has 14 wins on the season. It caps it continues to add to what he's already capped off as his second world championship. Um, the first he won, obviously, a year ago under circumstances we won't discuss. But another big, big victory a week ago in Austin for his team, Red Bull, who was able to also secure their first Constructors Championship in 11 years and the first team outside of Mercedes to do it in the last decade. A very, very successful and a very dominant season for Red Bull uh, Motorsports. Obviously, a huge victory um, 
for you as a fan of them and, and many, many Red Bull fans around the world. Uh, they've seen success from both of their drivers. Sergio Perez as well has had victories this season. Um, so a massive, massive win for Red Bull. Uh, they are world champs in both categories. The only thing that has happened recently to sort of rain a little bit on the parade is obviously them being handed the penalty that they were for their cost cap of violation. We will get to that in a second, but first I'll give you a moment to uh, bask in the glory of a double championship for your beloved Red Bull. Yeah. You know, as I've been saying throughout the year and we'll continue to say now forever, uh, long live Red Bull uh, vindication. I think uh, it was, it's proof that, uh, uh, no, I'm not going to get into last season. Um, but I think it was, uh, it, you know, it was, we will in a second, we will in a second, we will in a second. But um, uh, I think for me, you know, like it, I've been a bit taken back, not even my, I would have could have predicted the dominance that was Red Bull this year. And I don't think anyone, um, uh, you know, could say otherwise, uh, although in some ways it does feel like it was it was just a messy year like you know Ferrari could not get its strategy together uh, Mercedes never had the car not, not never had the car um but you know these things are these things aren't easy to win despite how easy they may have made it look this year so um you know congratulations to the team and Fred Horner and everyone else I think that you know it's great I think it's who is Fred Horner or what's his name Christian Horner Christian Horner sorry that's okay uh, I want to meet this Fred Horner his brother um okay. uh yeah and the team there I I you know I think it's an impressive it was impressive Pete and it's just the dominance with which they've done it I think is you know you, you have to notice well too so happy to hear about that now I have not really been following this f1 cost overrun thing uh other than just like the snarky comments made back and forth between horner and uh, you know all the other stuff so let why don't i turn it over to you i know that there was as part of this season a change in the rules and there were limitations on how much teams could spend on their cars. And it did have an impact on the season. Crashes became much more expensive and problematic. Uh, I, it sounded like it was ultimately this rule was a good thing for, for F1. Um, and now it appears as though for some reason Red Bull's gone over their costing. Or Yeah, so... Yeah, so we've talked a lot about this on Pit Stop, but let, this is great because this is an opportunity for us to, to share with a different audience. If you don't already listen, please, every Tuesday following Formula One races, uh, Braden, myself, and our buddy Tyler Walzak all talk F1. We do it on the Pit Stop podcast. You can find it anywhere your podcasts are listened to. There's my plug now. Elliot, the cost cap uh, is a new thing. Yeah, it's basically for people that aren't familiar with formula one, it's very similar to like the salary cap in like the NHL or in the national basketball association. Do they have a salary cap? Yeah, they do. Um, the point being it's meant to try to increase the parity that has not existed in formula one for a very long time. You had rich teams and you had poor teams and obviously the more money you spent, the better your car. And that's kind of how we've had these periods of dominance. So the idea was brought in with the new regulations uh, and it actually was, last season was the first time this was all meant to happen in 2020 2020 but because of covid everything kind of got shuffled along and everything in formula one is now kind of like a year behind where it was meant to be but last season the 2021 season there was a cost cap in place every team was only allowed to spend 
up to $145 million. Now that sounds like a lot of money and it is, but this is a very expensive sport. Um, and But that's the number. And at the end of the year, obviously every team was audited and every team had to p- provide proof of every penny they'd spent and on all of the different costs associated with building their car and paying employees and all these things. And for most teams, you know, um, they just provided the information, the audit was completed and we moved on. But it, because it was also the first year of doing this, the process dragged down way longer than the FIA, which is the governing body wanted. And in fact, we just, I believe at the end of August, um, completed the audit process for the year before which is what's crazy about it. So you're, you're policing teams spending a season late, which is a huge part of why this story became such a mess, right? Because we're dealing with punishments that were meant to be applied to a year ago, to a season ago. Um, and so it came out two teams had gone over. One of them was Aston Martin and the other team was Red Bull. Uh, and originally when the news broke, no one knew exactly how much they'd gone over all these things. So the speculation just starts to fly because it's like under the rules, the penalties for going over could be as severe as losing championships, which was everyone going, oh my God, is Lewis Hamilton actually going to become the champion that was given, the championship that was given to Max would now go back to Lewis and all of a sudden, you know, we rehash that whole debacle again. Um, so, you know, speculation was rife. And the problem was for the FIA, like it took them weeks after it was announced that Red Bull had gone over to negotiate what the punishment was going to be. And then they, they were meant to release this information, uh, uh, two weeks ago in Austin, but because the owner of Red Bull died, uh, that weekend, they decided out of respect to postpone that announcement, which of course only, made the drama more fun. So if Formula One didn't already have enough of a like sort of conspiracy theory surrounding it in so many ways that it only got worse. Anyway, point being, it came out that uh, Aston Martin had been like, um, they were over, but it was basically chalked up to like a clerical error. Like something, some receipt hadn't been submitted or a couple of receipts were in errors and they considered it such a mon, uh, like a, a minimal a violation that they, I think they were fined something like $750,000, like really nothing in the big scheme of things. The Red Bull penalty, on the other hand, certainly more substantial because they were found to be $2.2 million over the cap. And again, when we're talking about $145 million, 2.2 doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it is when the estimation in this sport is that every million dollars is the equivalent of about two one hundredths of a second. And we're talking about teams winning by thousandth of seconds right so it's a lot um they also estimate and this is the part that really chafed red bull that 1.8 of that 2.2 was money they could have applied for a tax credit for and didn't so they failed to apply for a tax credit and in doing so paid money that they you know what i mean so unfortunately for red bull it's on them not only because they overspent but also because they kind of boned the books a little bit there and didn't do a great job on that The penalty is $7 million. And the more important thing from a competitive perspective is they will lose 10% of their available wind tunnel time, which is where all of the development of this car happened because Formula One cars are not allowed to actually run on the track outside of very strict rules. So all the development of this car is done in simulation. Without that wind tunnel technology and time, you don't know. The challenge for, for, for the FIA was, well, how do we make this hurt enough without sort of affecting the outcome? Cause they did not want to do that. This is what they came up with $7 million. 
uh, and 10% of the reduction. And the worst part for Red Bull is because they just won the championship, they already had the least amount of time because it's, it's a progression backwards. So the top team gets the least amount, the worst team gets the most, kind of like a draft lottery. There's my long-winded explanation for you, but that's where we're at. Does that make sense? Yeah. So a couple questions here, the, the spending limit, that's everything, right? Like that's the driver's salary. That's everything that goes into the car. Okay. And so, so that was yes and no, yes and no. The driver's salary, there is a sliding scale based on the years of the contract. So you, you there's, it's kind of like signing bonuses is how like the NHL players kind of get around the cap in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So there is a percentage of their salary that is applied. And then there's a bit of a, gray area let's call it because obviously top teams are going to have the higher valued drivers and it becomes kind of a messy thing that way so partly yes partly no and so they were over 2.2 but they were they're really over 400,000 because of this 1.8 uh no they yeah something like that but they also asked yeah and i believe the four four i think it was 44 450 something they were over by that amount and that amount they also argued they shouldn't have been penalized for because it was additional catering okay now here's the Um, challenge here's the challenge that people will be like oh well it's for catering well yes but when you're spending when 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 you consider that you've gone over by 2.2, regardless of what you spent that 2.2 on, because the people are arguing, well, the 2.2 didn't even affect the car, right? It was like overtime pay, uh, uh, catering, and I believe somebody's sick pay. Well, yeah, sure, it didn't directly, that money didn't directly go into the car, but that meant that $2.2 million did go into the car instead of going to those two other things. Do you know what I mean? So money that, the, the extra space gained by that could have been directly used for the car is the point. And yeah, no, I, I get that, but it's actually only 450,000. If it were the team, well, if they had applied for the tax credit, yeah, but they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But they didn't. And that's the way the rules work. Right. No, of course. Yeah, no, I get that. I and get I think that. that's, what's frustrating for them. Obviously their argument is um, yeah. That basically I believe it's 0.5. A million dollars. So what are they? Yeah, five hundred thousand dollars. Anyway, point being, they're still over. And I think that the penalty, the challenge here for the penalty is that you ha- you have two ways to look at it. One, you can say, "Oh, that's pretty rough. Ten percent of already the shortest amount of time on there." But at the same time, you could argue they kind of need the least amount of time in the wind tunnel. They're going to put the exact, pretty much the exact same design of car. The regulations aren't changing back out on the circuit. And it's the fastest car by almost a half a second per lap of all of their competitors. So they've already got a major advantage to begin with. So they were probably not going to need as much development time in the tunnel anyway. So yes, it still hurts them, but maybe not the same way it would hurt, let's say, a team at the bottom. And the second part is this is precedent setting. So now every single team knows, well, if I only go over by this much, is that a worthwhile penalty to take? Like, am I willing to, you know, ask the owner of my team to spend $7 million extra at the end of the year? When you're talking about like Mercedes and Ferrari, they were already well overspending that in the old world before the cap. You know, these teams were exceeding 160, $170 million. They've been brought down to 145. The salary cap, the salary um, that pardon me, it's not a salary cap. The cost cap is only going to continue to get tighter moving forward. 
if this is the penalty, what kind of precedent, I guess, is the question? But does I think it set? That, and I think that this is the problem with FIA and sort of what we've kind of run into and a reoccurring theme around F1. And, and, it, and it, I think it what pisses people off is that, you know, if you're going to make rules like a cost cap, then as part of making those rules, you have to talk about consequences from the beginning and clearly outline what those are. Right. And the and, list, and, it was like a laundry list of possibles, but no clarification of what yeah. would be applied when. Agreed. Yeah. And and so I think, and well, I, under, I, I understand why they do what they do. It can look really deceptive and unfair because everyone that's a Red Bull fan is feeling like this is too much. And everyone who's not a Red Bull fan feels like this is not enough. Whereas if everyone had just decided, if you go over by this much, this happens to you, then maybe what we're, the debate is, should it fall under the consequences of 500,000 over or 2.2 million over? That's a fair debate and fair conversation. But instead, just like everything else related to the FIA, it's kind of made up and sort of happens on the go and is leads to inconsistencies. And while well, they did clean it up this year with the racing stuff after, you know, the debacle that was the end of the season last year, um, to some extent anyway, um, you know, this is, this is why in other sports, the rule book says, if you do this, then this will occur. Everyone knows that if you draw blood, when you high stick yeah, someone in right. the NHL, yep. you're going to get a four minute penalty. What's, what's cross-checking? Why is it only called sometimes? What's slashing? When's it only called no, sometimes? I know, but if you, is if, the stick if, level if, to the ice? The is it not? Things. Like if you're this much over, then this will happen to you. It's one yeah. of the easiest things to sure. sort of I agree. Right? Agreed. And, and, and the only thing specified in there is there's sort of two laundry lists, whether you're 5% over or more than 5% over. And uh, obviously you're right. It, it, it's a bit of a grab bag and they seem to have come to this kind of negotiated deal. I think the one really clear thing that the FIA made in their statement, which I did find very interesting. Here's the quote. Uh, there is no accusation or evidence that Red Bull has sought at any time to act in bad faith, dishonesty, or in a fraudulent manner, nor has it willfully concealed any information from the cost cap administration. So they've been very clear to say, we don't believe Red Bull did this on purpose. Therefore, you know, our, our adjudication of, of their salary violation. But at the same time, I think it's fair for their competitors to kind of be going, well, is it what punishment enough? Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. So again, well, I guess we'll wait and see, but it, it, as I say, it's sort of the only blemish on what was otherwise a pretty flawless and pretty impressive season for Red Bull and still is uh, sporting wise still is unbelievable season for them. Uh, I think they had 16, uh, no, 18 wins in total of a 23 race season. We've got two races left. In F1, like presumably there's nothing left to race for. for Not true. Not true. Red Bull? Not true. No, there is lots to race for. This is what we were talking about. Well, no, but I mean, in the other teams, but if you're Red Bull, you've, you've won the driver's championship and you've won the constructors. So would you like obviously there's benefits to winning races, but w would you ever run in a situation where like Verstappen wouldn't race and they put in like a backup guy just to ensure safety or probably not do some development. Probably not. I think at this point uh, it's about pride. It's about all of those things, but you're still competing against teams that are trying to win. And mm -hmm. when you're in that position, you're trying to prevent them from winning. 
because you have Mercedes and Ferrari who are now in a dogfight for second place. And of course there are like, we're still talking about prize money. That is very, very important because it, that money will be applied directly to their budget for next year. And that's huge. When you as an organization, as a business don't have to apply capital to the operation because you've made that you've earned that money based on your results of the season before. That's huge. Right. I mean, think of it in the NHL. It's like if, 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 if the, if the rankings in the standings were a direct cost benefit to the teams, think about how the level of competition would go up for those teams that are on the bubble or outside the playoffs. They'd all be fighting to, because it, their owner's dollars are on the line and it makes them more competitive. Right. Um, the big thing for, for, for Red Bull is they're still trying to, they, they have a role to play here in, in how the rest of the, the standings go. Like, let's look at the constructors right now. You've got, um, I mean, Ferrari is still in second. They've got 487 points, but they both finished way back today. And so Mercedes is right at them. They've got 40, uh, four, 447 points. They're literally 40 points away. That's two good results from two of their drivers in the last two races. They'd be the second place constructor. When you yeah. know Mercedes, I mean, you kind of joked Mercedes never had the pace, but Mercedes had their best weekend of the season this weekend in New Mexico when it came to actual qualifying. They qualified second and third. And at points during qualifying, qualifying were faster than Red Bull. So they have figured out their car, which means they will take a very competitive car into the off season with the disadvantage Red Bull has. They'll have more wind tunnel time. They'll have more development time. They will come back next year, ready to attack Red Bull again. And as a result, Red Bull wants to do everything they can to, to hurt Mercedes chances. They're trying that they're obviously going to try to keep, continue to, to, to develop that. And you have two drivers there who are competing for, you know, they want to, I mean, Max just, set a record as a team they can push the own their own personal record in terms of race wins all time up higher make it harder for future i guess max to break it again next year kind of thing but yeah i think there's still lots on the line for red bull there's lots on the line for every team i guess that's the big thing it's it's one of the most competitive mid-season team um championships we've ever had fourth and fifth is crazy uh alpine currently sits at 153 points ahead of their championship rival in mclaren who has 146 like that's less than 10 points dividing the two of them and and they're always right on each other all race long so that's a huge thing because that's you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line for them and then right below them in six and seventh is another amazing competition because you've got alfa romeo with 53 points and aston martin with 49 I mean, literally, we're under five points now, differentiating those two. Every single point matters. And and to make it even more spicy, in eight and nine, you've got Haas and Alpha Tori, and they're divided by one point, 46 for Haas and, and pardon me, 36 for Haas and 35 for Alpha Tori. Literally, every single one of these positions from three down is up for grabs. They, they, will, they will switch and flop based on how they do in two more races. It's exciting. I mean, that's, and driver standing is the same way. I mean, uh, Hamilton is in striking distance now. His teammate Russell could catch him for fourth place. George George Russell could still catch Charles Leclerc for third place. Uh, Charles Leclerc is fighting against Sergio Perez. That's the big thing for Perez. He wants to finish number two. There's another reason for Red Bull to keep fighting. He wants to finish number two in the standings, higher than he's ever finished as a driver. And he's got Charles Leclerc right behind him, only five points behind him. So yeah, there's so much to play for here. They go in two weeks to uh, Brazil. And then we have our season finale in bum, 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 Dubai. Cool. Well, for all the information if following on F1 and everything that's going on, you can check out the Pit Stop podcast every Tuesday, 
after every race? Yeah, the, every Tuesday following a race weekend. Every Tuesday following a race. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Elliot. That was awesome. Thank you for uh, your questions. You did a great job earlier in the year, too, for us on Pit Stop, giving us some sort of, uh, you called it like... Yeah, F1 I still don't know what the hell porpoising is, though. That just sounds made up. To me. Well, good news is it's it's come, it's it's come a long way, and they've gotten rid of it in most cars. So that's the good news. Uh, but if you hear Tyler say porpoising one more time, I'm just going to... I laugh every time. <laughs> all right well uh he might he may or may not that'll be out on tuesday as mentioned look if you haven't already please subscribe to uh, hattrick sports wherever you get your podcast tell your friends about it hit us up on instagram twitter and facebook thanks elliot uh for joining me this week it was so much nicer than having to sit here and stare at my own face uh looking back at me out of a black screen of a computer all alone much more fun when there's a uh, a fellow combatant and we will be back again next week to bring you even more fun stories from around the sporting world. Until then, that was Hattrick. Hattrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coltman and Braden Dyler Coltman. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.